Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theater Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theater Wing. Today we're joined by Robin Goodman. Robin was the co-founder of Second Stage Theater along with Carol Rothman, served as the artistic director for 13 seasons, during which time they produced 50 plays and won so many awards, I can't even begin to mention them all. Also, she worked for four years for ABC uh, on One Life to Live as a supervising producer, six Emmy Awards during that period. Since then, Robin has joined the Manhattan Theater Club as director of artistic development, has formed Aged in Wood, and has produced off-Broadway a number of shows, including Altar Boys, which is now running, Our Lady of 121st Street, Tick, Tick, Boom, Bat Boy the Musical, and on Broadway, the recent revival of Steel Magnolias, Avenue Q, which won the Tony a year ago as Best Musical, Metamorphosis, a class act. Robin, welcome. Thank you very much. Now that we're out of time <laughs> the show <laughs> after that list of credits. Well, with that list, it, it bears asking immediately. You've gotten involved in so many shows and so many different kinds of shows. Is there a show Robin Goodman looks for to get involved with as a producer? I guess I operate from my gut. Um, I have very eclectic tastes. Carol Rothman and I started that way, and I've proceeded in my career to go with what I respond to. I can respond to a very gritty play, or I can respond to a very accessible musical. It really has to do with what speaks to me and what excites me. So of the most recent projects, let's just talk about Alter Boys, Avenue Q, as the new shows, and then we'll talk about revivals because, of course, you had Steel Magnolias and you have another revival coming this year. But what specifically appealed to you in Avenue Q and in Alter Boys? Well, Avenue Q, I first saw uh, Jeff Marks and Bobby Lopez at the BMI workshop, and they were singing three songs that they wrote for this TV show called Avenue Q. And, I, and there were puppets involved with that presentation, and I had never seen anything like it. It was the freshest thing I'd ever seen. It made me howl with laughter. Uh, it surprised me, and I and I thought, if we could make this into a musical, not even thinking whether it was Broadway or off-Broadway, but just the talent that I saw uh, that day. Rick Lyon was also there. I thought, this will be one of the most exciting things I've ever worked on. And then, of course, it took me some time to convince them that that was the way to go rather than write to TV. Uh, but finally they did. And with Jeffrey and Kevin as my partners, Jeffrey Seller and Kevin McCollum, uh, we spent three years developing that show, and it was a joy. Well, they, they were considering for television? What were they going They to wanted do to write a pilot uh, uh-huh. uh, for television called Avenue Q, I guess because they're television boys. Aimed at adults, at children? A- at aimed at people their own age, uh-huh. you know, young, 20-something, young 30-something uh-huh. kids who grew up on Sesame Street. It was basically. always similar material. They just initially had in their head that it would make a TV show. Exactly, exactly. And we we said this is perfect for a musical. Once you have a hit musical, you can do TV, you can do film, you'll be able to do whatever you want. And finally, they believed us. <laughs> and Alter Boys? Alter Boys, uh, I saw a very early reading with a different book and fell in love with that music, actually. I thought it was uh, wonderful music. It was exciting. It was contemporary. I thought the idea of spoofing uh, Christian boy bands and telling a story that was without, uh, that wasn't mean-spirited, that had sort of a sweet uh, sensibility, uh, it started with the music. It started with that music. I heard uh, I Believe, which is a, a gorgeous song, and and uh, I just thought there was, once again, so much talent there that if we could find a story that would hook up with that music, we might have something. Now, what what form was Alter Boys in when you first came to it? They It was in a concert form with, with a 
very tiny bit of story, not much. And they were looking for a way to develop it to the next step. And fortunately, I raised my hand higher than anyone else and said, I think that we can find a book writer together who can make this a very simple story. Because when you're in the concert format, you can't really tell a big story. You know, all your action has to take place on the stage during the concert. So it was a real challenge uh, to figure it out. Well, the story is basically this this boy band with some interpersonal relationships among among the boys in the band. Exactly, and a lot of secrets spill out towards the end of the show right. that affect their future and uh, create a crisis between them, and uh, they're brought together by, at the end because it's a musical. Of course. <laughs> of course. <laughs> now, we'll talk about the business side of producing in a minute, but you've already alluded to the development of shows, mm-hmm. and you mentioned that a book writer needed to be brought on for Alter Boys, and in fact, the same thing happened with Avenue Q. It was originally Bobby and, and Jeff, and Jeff Witte was brought to the party a little later on. So where where are you in that process? How do you help how do you work on those decisions how do you address that with artists and say you guys have done something good but it's it's probably the most creative and interesting part of my job and sometimes the most difficult because uh, on both projects we had to fire at least one or sometimes two book writers who weren't able to deliver and uh, sometimes there are personal relationships involved and you have to you have to go so far as do a reading sometimes so that the authors can see that it's not working and hear from their friends it's not working so that we can support our decision. Um, and it, it's it's a gut thing about understanding what kind of writer is right for what kind of project. Jeff Witte, I knew through my Man- Manhattan Theater Club experience, he had done a reading. I did a reading series there, and he was part of it. And he was so funny and contemporary and, and surprising that I thought he should he would be perfect for Avenue Q. And he, along with several other writers, met with the authors, and he got the job. Now, you, you've had you know, different titles, artistic director, you've had producer. Who makes these decisions, the producer, the artistic director? Artistic director is really a title one only uses in the not-for-profit world, uh-huh. and it's the same thing as being a producer uh-huh. in the creative world, unless you pick up other people's shows. The kind of producing I like to do is uh, helping people develop projects Usually, I mean, that's mostly what I'm doing right now. And uh, it's a very creative job. You get to help them make a lots of, lot of important creative decisions about personnel. So is it the producer then that makes the decision to change the writers on the show or change cast members, that sort of thing, generally? Hopefully in tandem with the creative people, but yes. Because if you're going to raise a million, as in Alter Boys, or two million, or three point five million, as in Avenue Q, you have to be able to go out to investors and say, you know, this is the best product we could find and we could make together. But as we talk about multiple artists involved Mm -hmm. in a project, there are also multiple producers. You've mentioned Kevin and Jeffrey with Avenue Q. You're partnered with Ken Davenport uh, as the lead producers on Alter Boys. Um, When you're talking about changing people, on the one hand, you're you're talking to the artists, but you're also talking to your partners. Absolutely. Does it become complicated in this day and age where some of us go to shows and see 20 people above the title as producers? Well, you, you, you don't develop a show with 20 people. That's a big mistake. I mean, Jeffrey and Kevin and I hadn't worked together, and we were very fortunate. And, and Ken and I had never worked together. But fortunately, we had the same vision for the show. And we... We talked everything through. Kevin and Jeffrey and I have a very similar sensibility, and we were able to agree on every decision that had to do with create 
creating the show. Ken and I, we had the same vision. He was one of the uh, conceivers of the show, so sometimes I had to had to badger him a little bit, <laughs> but uh, he took it very well, and uh, he was a pleasure to work with, and he, he and I always came to the creative people in the same voice, with the same decision. You never let them see, if you disagree on something, as you work it out, you work it out privately, and never let the creative people see it, because it's very important that you have a strong, single voice. I think. Is it that sometimes the conceiver or the, the other people who've been involved with nurturing the idea might be too close to it, not see the trees for the forest, that sort of thing? Uh, absolutely. Uh-huh. I mean, Ken's love for altar boys was enormous, and he was deeply, deeply committed to it. And he needed to step back and take a look at it and stop being the conceiver and be a producer. And he did that readily. But, you know, it's a transition that takes a little time sometimes. With both of the shows we're talking about right now, Avenue Q and Alter Boys, there's an interesting question of scale, which is that when Avenue Q was first seen at the Vineyard after multiple developmental productions, the conventional wisdom was, oh, that'll never work on Broadway. It, it You can't have those puppets. It's not big enough. Um, and I saw... Alter Boys with one of the producers of Brooklyn, and we got into a conversation about, well, if Brooklyn had been off Broadway, might it have done differently, conversely, if Alter Boys was on Broadway. How do you go about deciding what the right scale is or dealing with the conventional wisdom, which by all accounts would have said, don't put Avenue Q on Broadway? I think it was because we didn't know when we started performances uh, for Avenue Q downtown, we didn't know if it moved where it was going to go. We had no idea. But I remember the second or third preview talk, uh, turning to Jeffrey and Kevin and us looking at each other because the subscribers who were there, who were people, I would say, 45 and up, were loving it and having a wonderful time, as were the younger people. We suddenly thought, wow, the appeal for this musical is much broader than we thought. And as we watched the audiences, we began to feel that Broadway, it had so much to say, which I think is important to Broadway. It has to have something, ideas and a story that moves people. We thought we had all the elements in in Avenue Q. Uh, And seeing the audience response, we said, you know, if we put it in the right theater and we don't blow it up and we don't try to make it something it isn't, we think we might have a shot. And when we looked that we could do it, when we did all the numbers and saw that it was probably only going to mean three and a half million dollars, we thought it was worth taking the risk. But talking about the theater now, it's in the Avenue Q. It's at the John Golden Theater, yes, which is certainly bigger than off-Broadway theaters, yes, but a lot smaller than some of the big Broadway theaters. Seven hundred ninety-six seats, as opposed to <laughs> fifteen hundred, eighteen hundred, two thousand seats, or, right, yeah. right. Was that a purposeful choice on your part to go into that particular Absolutely. theater? Absolutely, we looked. That size? We looked at several theaters. And uh, But we looked at all the smaller ones. And some of the, you know, we looked at the Walter Kerr. We looked at uh, the booth was too small. When we got to the Golden, there was some magic that happened. We came with the puppets and put the puppets on stage and sat in the very, very back row of the theater with the, with the authors. Uh-huh. And there was something about the puppets in the Golden. If you look at the Golden, it has insignias on two sides. It looks like a little puppet theater, actually. And they read beautifully to the back of the house. Well, Rick Lyon made an interesting point in a conversation I had with him once, which is that so much of what you respond to in an actor is their eyes, and that, in fact, the eyes on the puppets are larger than the eyes on a human actor. And so while the puppet overall may physically be smaller... The mouth, the eyes are there. People can fix on those, even though they never actually move. Their heads Um, are pretty big, sometimes bigger than the actors' heads. Yeah. So we chose that theater very carefully. But as we talk about scale, I mentioned Alter Boys. Let's go beyond. 
Now you're talking about Avenue Q, as we've all heard, going to Vegas in a 1,200-seat house, the one that's being built specially for Avenue Q, we're told. Uh, There's talk of it turning up in London, and I hear about a national tour for altar boys being a possibility. So what... What are the decisions about those? Does the show change? I think our decision to go to Vegas was very much an artistic decision, as much an artistic decision as it was a financial decision, because Steve Wynn was willing to build us a theater for Avenue Q, and it's actually 1150. It's not 1200. Close enough. Close enough. If anybody's checking the grosses. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe he threw in a couple more seats. I don't know. But uh, we very much didn't want to go to those 2,000 and 4,000-seat houses on the road because we thought we'd get lost there. Although Rick told me he'd played 1,000 or 2,000-seat theaters with his puppets and it had worked, we were concerned about it. And uh, not only that, but when we met with a lot of those people on the road, they were afraid of the show. They weren't sure how it would work in some of the smaller towns. And Steve loved it. He felt it was a Vegas show. He was willing to build us an intimate theater, you know, to our specs. We worked very closely with Steve on the on the building of the theater. And uh, so I think, you know, in that sense, we'll m- retain a lot of the intimacy of but, the show. But in staging it for Las Vegas, will the show in any way itself change? You know, the um, authors have gone back to make some improvements in the show that they didn't have time to do in the in the rapid move to Broadway, which is going to be fun. There's going to be some lyric changes, some little tiny uh, cuts here and there, some uh, uh, approach to one of the songs is going to be a little different. But it really is to improve the show itself. You know, nothing's ever done. Stephen Sondheim's still working on his musicals. And so it's really in it, not for Vegas. We didn't intend to make changes. It's just that they, being the guys they are, wanted to go back in and do some of the things that they always wanted to do. And would you make those same changes now in the New York show as well? We might eventually. Yes. So we, you know, we're going to London, mm-hmm. so we'll we'll also do even we'll do yet another change for London because Gary Coleman is not somebody that people in London are familiar with. So mm-hmm. they're working on changing that character into something that's more uh, uh, universal. So when we go to other European cities, it will be another name and another character. And at the outset, you mentioned that this was originally being created for television. What about TV now? Well, you know, they're going to they're going to hold back and see and let the show kind of thrive in Las Vegas and London and some of the other places around the world before they actually go into television. Because, you know, television is a scary place. Not that Broadway isn't. But you never know what's going to happen with television, and they don't want to jeopardize Avenue Q, the musical, at this point. So probably in two or three years, they'll they'll make a television deal. And for either the Vegas or the London version, any of the New York principals involved with that? Yes. members? Yes. John Tartaglia and Rick Lyon are going to Las Vegas. Uh And we're not sure yet about London. We haven't even cast it yet. How about Stephanie? Stephanie wanted to stay in New York. We asked her to come to Vegas, but, you know, she has a life in New York, and she wanted to stay She has a here. husband in New York. She has a husband, and, right. you know, wherever Stephanie wants, whatever she wants, we're happy to have her there. Great. Well, and now Alter Boys. Yes. Kept off Broadway. Talk of it moving, being seen around the country. Was there ever a thought of Alter Boys being a Broadway show? You know, there wasn't, but there was a point about, I would say about two months ago, that Ken and I discussed, did we make a mistake? Should we move it now to Broadway? Um, I think the reason we made the decision was because we felt it was a smaller show. You know, it's it's thematically it's it's more in the line of for, uh, Forever Plaid or Nonsense that it doesn't have a you know big ideas like I think Avenue Q actually does. Everyone's a little bit racist, you know. It has bigger themes in it, 
and more of a, a conventional storyline. Alter Boys is a spoof. It's fun. It's it's an entertainment. But we were worried that it would Broadway would diminish it in some way. So let's swing from these two shows to revivals because we've just concluded the run of Steel Magnolias on Broadway, but you've already got plans for next season for Barefoot in the Park. What are the decisions as a producer that goes into deciding when the time is right to bring something back and what makes it commercial again? Well, you're not always right in those decisions, of course, but... uh uh, I was working for about a year. I was negotiating with Paramount for the rights to Barefoot in the Park, and um, it, it was it, the idea came from Scott Elliott, who I admire tremendously. The director. He, the director who runs the new group. Uh, I'm a big fan of his work and and that theater, and he came to me and said, you're not going to believe this because I'm known for my edgy productions, but I'm in love with Barefoot in the Park. Do you think you'd like to do it with me? And I said, you know, I've always loved that play. It, it, if you read that play, it holds up beautifully. And it hasn't been done since the 60s, 64. And I thought, you know, if something's ripe for a a revival, it's Barefoot in the Park. And uh, so I pursued it. And um, Scott and I did a reading of it last summer, and we were astounded at how well it held up and how funny and warm and delicious it was. I mean, is the most – Manny Eisenberg said to me, because Manny was very helpful uh, to me because he's produced all of Neil's plays – and he said, you'll find that Barefoot in the Park will win over every audience. It just is irresistible. And I think that's true. I think it is irresistible. And so while I was working on that, uh, and I had partnered with Roy Gabay on Metamorphoses, I, I told him I was working on it. And I said, would you like to join me? And he said, yes. Would you like to join me on Steel Magnolias? Well, it turned out that he was in the process of getting the rights for Steel Magnolias. And I said, well, let me go back and read that. I remember loving the very first production. So once again, I thought, you know, this is such an appealing play and so warm once again. And the idea of bringing six women to Broadway was very appealing to me because I saw all these revivals coming, and they're all men. And I thought, we have to strike back. We have (laughs) to have some gals on Broadway. I didn't realize there were going to be so many revivals in one season, and in retrospect, probably we should have waited. But that's one of the challenges of producing on Broadway is you're never quite sure what the competition might be when projects come together, when theaters open up. I mean, how much can you plan for that, and how much of it is you got to go when you're ready to go? Well, you know, the one thing I said to Scott is we just can't open in the same season as, as Odd Couple. And what are we doing? Well, that's We're worked open. out well for yeah, you. Yeah, that's really worked out well for us. But, you know, I, I, once again, I talked to Manny about this. And, you know, I said, if you open in the fall and we open in the winter, spring, uh, my guess is you're going to be sold out by the time we go on sale. <laughs> so I'm not going to worry about it. And I think, in fact, it's turned out to be true. And I think there'll be a kind of synergy that people will suddenly take a look at Neil again and realize what, what a wonderful and important playwright he is. Because Barefoot in the Park is a perfect romantic comedy. And Odd Couple, as we know, is totally enjoyable play, wonderful play. Now, with either Barefoot in the Park or Steel Magnolias being revivals, any basic changes to the to the book in, in bringing them back? Any updates for? You know, or, we or, or asked. They hold up pretty well. I, I, you know, we we originally said, Neil, are you willing to make some cuts or make some changes? And he said yes. And he came to the reading, and at the end of it, we said, forget it. We don't want to change anything. It holds Nothing. up okay. Yeah, it really does. Steel Magnolias. Bob made little tiny tweaks to things he thought audiences wouldn't understand now, you know, references. But he actually didn't make any major changes at all. Now, with both Steel Magnolias, which has just concluded its run. This and, Sunday, yeah. Right, and right. Barefoot in the Park, which will be opening next season, uh, next year, 
um, in casting, what what are your 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 thoughts when you go to cast either one of those shows? Who who do you look for and why? Well, you know, Broadway's a tough place right now, or you know, maybe it always has been, but uh, particularly right now because it costs two million dollars to put on a play, and it takes a long time to recoup that money. So you really want to have whatever recognizable stars you can have in a show. But but I'm pretty rigorous about making sure that they're right for the parts. <laughs> and I work very closely. Casting is a big thing of mine. I work very closely with my director. Scott and I uh, cast every part together in a way. I mean, we we worked, we collaborated tremendously on the casting of it and really thought it through. And we wanted, we wanted to appeal to two generations. So in casting Amanda Peek and Patrick Wilson, we think that it'll appeal a lot to a young audience. And, you know, it's interesting if you ask people, all the young people know who they are and all the older people know who Jill Clayburgh and Tony Roberts are mm-hmm. uh, because they're wonderful veterans. So, um, you're thinking about marketing your show, really, when you're casting it. And and sometimes, you know, an actor like Lily Rabe walks in and you say, well, there's no one else who can play this part. They don't. And I remember saying, Lily, they, they don't know you now, but when the play opens, they'll all know who you are. In, in Steel Magnolias. Yes. Right. But you had an interesting challenge with Steel Magnolias because in many ways the movie now has, has overshadowed, although there were countless productions of the show over the years and had a long off-Broadway run, when you revisit a piece of material like that, when suddenly you are, for better or for worse, competing with Shirley MacLaine and Dolly Parton and Julia Roberts, you chose not to go after the biggest stars. You went after really solid actresses for yes. that because they were terrific people, but none of whom were of the star power that were going to necessarily just sell your show. That's correct. But how how tough is it when you're when you're casting a show and you're facing the looming specter of this movie? Yes, well, I would tell you the truth that a couple of people of of major star stature were offered the roles and they turned it down for just that reason. They didn't want because Steel Magnolias is so recent. They didn't want to be compared. But uh, uh, we found some pretty game actresses, I would say, up on that stage, and we felt very strongly that the combination of those six women was exciting enough to mount a Broadway play. But we thought about it a great deal as we went along. Each part we cast, we tried to make sure it was balancing the rest of the show. So do you go into, in your mind, an idea of who you might want, kind of like a wish list, and then work from there as people either indicate interest or no interest in it? Yes. I think we pretty much, on Barefoot, got our first choices in every role. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That was a lucky thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I remember thinking, Patrick Wilson, my God, he's Robert Redford reincarnated. We have to have him for this. And Amanda Peet, she's, you know, she's gorgeous and talented and wonderful. I mean, and same with Jill and Tony. Tony and I have been friends for years, and so have Jill and I, actually, We and I've always wanted to work with them. So it's thrilling. That cast is thrilling to me. Just And so is Steel Magnolias. They're wonderful women, every single one of them. And every one, I think, was so well cast for that part. You could just picture the way they looked and they acted with the character. Yes. Well, the biggest stretch was Marsha Mason, who I thought was very daring to be playing someone a little older than herself, because no uh-huh. actress ever wants to do that. And she said, Robin, I'm in the mood to do a character p- part, and, you know, cast me in something wacky. And so right, there you she go. is. You gave it to her. And Christine Ebersole was great, and Frances Sternhagen, oh, and Delta Frances Burke, they were all wonderful. I worship at the feet of Frances Sternhagen. <laughs> she's fantastic. Yeah, she's magnificent. Well, as we sit here, successful Broadway producer, Robin Goodman. Well, thank you. Tell us about starting a theater company and seeing it through the first 13 years of its life. What was the impetus for Second Stage, and and how did it grow over that time, and how did you grow with it and ultimately choose to go move beyond it? 
Um, I came to New York as an actress, and I worked as an actress for several years, and a, a lot for Joe Papp. And at one point in my life, Joe asked me to start bringing him some projects, and I did. And it, we developed a sort of mentoring projects relationship. for you to act in. Yes, and f- f- to do with the public. And I brought him th- two or three things, and um, he became my mentor, really. And at one point, just convinced me that that's what I should be doing. He said, you know, you're a producer and you should be producing and you should figure out a way to do it. And I said, oh, I I don't know. I can't. And I would say about six months later, Carol Rothman approached me and said, I've been looking for a partner to start a theater. I want you to be it. And I said, I don't want to start a theater unless we have a great idea. Because there were so many small theaters at that time. And what, what time period are we in now? This was like 1979. And, and what was Carol doing at that point? Carol was a director. Uh-huh. She was working at, like, Circle Rep and Manhattan Theater Club and, you know, all the not-for-profits. Carol knew much more about not-for-profit administration than I did. I knew nothing. I just knew how to act, you know. And uh, I had also been in London, and I had ended up producing some plays in London by default. So uh, I had had a taste. You make it sound so easy. Yes, I know. <laughs> well, it was it was a crazy situation. I was cast in some plays, and as we were about to get on the plane about a week before, the producer said, I ran out of money. There's a theater waiting for you if you can get yourself over there. So another actress and I scurried around and raised, you know, I think at the time it was like $5,000 from everybody we knew. And we got on the plane not knowing what was in store for us. And we had three American plays that we did over there. And Michael Billington still says we changed the tide. Well, he believes that those three productions encouraged people to do American plays. What were they? Uh, In the Boom Boom Room by David Rabe, Flux by Susan Miller, and another play that, you know, I can't even remember the title of. But it was the the guy who had who was going to produce the plays the season had written that play, but in the Boom Boom Room and Flux were huge successes over there, and uh, I stayed and I worked for a while in English theater and then came back. Anyway, so Carol and I met for about six months until we came up with this idea of second stage, which everyone would thought was a little crazy, because why would critics and audiences go back to see a, pl- a play a second time. Well, space well, specifically it, what that idea was. Yeah, exactly. It was giving contemporary plays that had failed for you know a variety of reasons or only played for 12 performances because that's what the showcase code was at the time and still is, I think. Uh, for some reason, needed to be looked at again, directed by a different person, produced in a different way. So really, we were trying to keep contemporary literature alive because at that time, plays were being ripped out of typewriters and thrown on the stage. It was all about new plays. So, uh, and we talked to a lot of people about this idea, and everybody thought it was daring and, you know, dangerous, and the critics wouldn't come back. But fortunately, the second play we ever did, which was by Michael Weller, was a play called Split, was a huge success. And the first play we ever did, however, you know, the playwright threatened us with a gun. I mean, it was everybody quit. The 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 four days before we were supposed to open, we had to ask our friends Jeff Daniels and Lynn Milgram to come and act in the play and other people to light it. And other, I mean, it was insane. Was, was that because people were dropping out? Yes. Uh-huh. Yes. And Joe Pep, I remember calling. We went down to see Joe Pep. We said, look what's happening here. Everybody's leaving. They're quitting. What should we do? He said, get up there and put on a show. Mm-hmm. And he was so right. The show must go on. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So we did. We opened that first show. We got through it. We got decent reviews. But the second show kind of took off. And then the fourth show we ever did, the, the beginning of the second season, was How I Got That Story, 
which was a huge success and moved to Off-Broadway and the Kennedy Center and had a long life. Now, how do, how do you define huge success? Got length, great length, reviews. Length Frank run, Rich great, gave us a yeah. great review. So. And transferred to a commercial Off-Broadway To a commercial Off-Broadway uh, And had, as you said, countless productions. Yes. Of, there's, there's nothing better than a, a two-character play that's a hit. Exactly. If you want to want to exactly. see some success with it. Carol and I often are nostalgic about that time when we were so young and just putting on plays that we liked, you know, not thinking about anything, you know, putting our friends, Brooke Adams and John Hurd and this one and that one. We put our friends in the plays that we thought were good, but mm-hmm. and it was so carefree on one level, you know. It, it and, was... And maybe a bit naive, too. Oh, totally. Totally naive. <laughs> totally naive. <laughs> More than a bit. Yeah. And after 13 <laughs> years, you know, you kind of burn out in the not-for-profit theater. It's tough. So after 13 years, then you decided to go into television, which is quite different. Yes, it, I it, thought it would be interesting to see what it felt like to earn a living. <laughs> <laughs> so I uh, was offered a job, and I took it, and... Uh, uh, you know, it was a fascinating experience, soap opera, and that's for another interview sometime. But well, for, for, for a person like yourself who's serious about theater to be working in soap operas, which have kind of not the greatest reputation among serious theater people. You know, we had a bunch of serious theater people in that. Performing? Well, no, writing, oh, writing. directing. Uh, Lonnie Price was directing. Michael Malone, who's won countless awards uh, as a novelist, was writing. And there were a bunch of very, Gene Passanante, very interesting people on that soap. And we used to say the process of making this soap is so much more interesting and exciting than the product. Because it is. It's a, Episodic television is a fascinating field and a very difficult one. And uh, we all enjoyed the challenge of it. But then, you know, you'd watch it. It was a soap. Well, you're basically turning, <laughs> turning out a, a new one-hour play every day, five Absolutely. days a week. You know, if you watch uh, Six Feet Under and some of these hour programs now, they're soap operas at a sophisticated level. Right. That's really what they are. I was watching it last night, and it has exactly the same structure as everything that we did on the soap. Yeah, if you go back to the days of Dallas and Knott's Landing, yes. that's when they really referred to them as the nighttime soaps, exactly. and now they're just... just no, they just have better writers the... on them. Really, they're wonderful playwrights on uh, Six Feet Under. And also, unlike theater, you can make a lot more money on television. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, I bought an apartment and I left the soaps, <laughs> basically. <laughs> and uh, I didn't work for about eight, nine months. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And um, Michael Bush and Lynn Meadow called me up and said, do you want to come back to the theater? And I, and I realized the theater, had, in those five years that I was away, it had changed enormously. So I said, yeah, I think I better figure out what's going on in the theater now. And I, and she sa- and I said, you know, two years probably is all I'll stay. She said, that's great. I need help right now. And uh, I spent two really happy years there. At Manhattan Theater Club. Yes, yes. Which was in the early to mid-90s? I worked on Proof. No, it was late 90s. Late late 90s. 98 Uh to 2000. I worked on Proof. I worked on Fuddy Mirrors. I worked on East is East. I worked on some great, great plays. Uh Um, And and I I realized that I, I thought, you know, I'm producing for Lynn now in a sense, even though I wasn't raising the money. I'd like a bigger challenge. I'd like to try to do this for myself. So uh, I formed a, an LLC and put out a shingle and uh, started working on, on – just as I was leaving, I found Avenue Q so, and Bat Boy, which was my f- very first uh, endeavor. And the, but the, those, those were musicals. You'd always been working on plays. I know. But, you know, when you've done about 55 plays, you, uh-huh. you want looking for the next challenge. And I think that musicals are m- about the most difficult things you can do in the whole world is to making a musical work. Is, and so the challenge of it was very exciting to me. But why is it so so difficult, so challenging? Oh, you know, an original musical. I mean, if you base it on a movie, at least you have a story structure. But creating an original story that works as a dramatic arc and getting the music just right and having it move the story along, it's a very complicated form and therefore very exciting, I think. 
you alluded to it moments ago, but before we wrap up, I want to ask very explicitly, one of the key responsibilities of being a producer is finding the money. How different is that than finding the money to support your not-for-profit theater company? And and what are the things you have to do in this day and age to, to find the money to put, put a show on Broadway? Well, it's uh, it's very similar. You know, asking people for money is asking people for money. You know, getting it back or not getting it back. I mean, you really have to look at Broadway uh, as not-for-profit or, you know, or else you shouldn't be investing in it because, you know, the odds are not so great. I mean, there are better ways to invest your money. We all know that. But it's exciting and it's, you know, it's very – a lot of investors have a wonderful time. Um, it's – there are a lot of great people now who want to be involved in theater as second – chapters in their lives. And, and that's very lucky for those of us who are kind of the working dogs in the business, that uh, we can partner up with some of these people who are willing to put money in, in large quantities, uh, and be involved with us on putting a play together. And, you know, I started with a lot of relationships, and I met some people working at Manhattan Theater Club. Uh, so I did it piece by piece, and as people saw my work, like Metamorphoses made money. It made 50% on its money. I mean, I, I made 150 back, basically. And that was an extraordinary thing. Well, I'm going to interrupt you because you remind me of something, which is that Metamorphoses, which, of course, it didn't begin at second stage. It actually began in Chicago, but it had its New York debut at second stage. Um when it got terrific reviews, but there are a lot of producers circling that show, and, and I know one very successful commercial producer who looked at that with the people he regularly produces with, and they said, can't make it work. We think it's terrific, but you can't make it work. How did you make it work? By squeezing the numbers until they screamed. I mean, I think that Roy Gabay is very good at budgeting shows and keeping them, uh, you know, making the artist feel supported, but also keeping the numbers down. And I think the choice of going to Circle and Square was a very good one. It was the perfect place for the play. And uh, we were very we're very attentive to the numbers. Basically. And your partners on that, a lot of your above-the-title people, I can presume only some of those who did, weren't necessarily named, were not the traditional backers of Broadway shows. They weren't the names you saw everywhere else. We're seeing them all since, That's I'm correct. Noticing. I've launched them. Uh, you know what? They were there for passion. They fell in love with the show at second stage. I mean, I invited a bunch of people that I knew, and some who worked on Tick, Tick, Boom with me and from other places, and they just fell in love with it. They did it for love, absolutely for love, because it was such a beautiful show. And weren't they surprised when they made money on it? Mm-hmm. I think they were. <laughs> you, you talk about squeezing the numbers. And, you know, the theater is certainly an artistic medium, a medium for artistic expression, but it's show business, and the business yes. part of it is just as important as the show part of it, yes. because without the business part of it, there wouldn't be any shows. Exactly. Exactly. And one of the things that that I have in common with my present partners is that we try to remember what goes on the stage is very important. That's not the place to squeeze. You squeeze around that. I mean, you know, within reason, you have to, you know, artists will always ask you for more than you can afford. And you have to decide what's serving the the play or the musical. But what goes on that stage is where you should put your money. And if you're paying your actors a lot of money or you're spending it on the set or those kinds of things, those are good things to spend your money on. And you have to look at your other budgets, your advertising budget, your, you know, some of the other ways you're spending money or taking money. I'm, we're very low on the fees in my productions. We don't take a lot until the show pays back, and then we have a chunk of the profit. I think it's you know very important to do that. Roy and I have been very careful about not uh, taking a lot of money off the top. 
And, be, and, of course, those of us who sit in the audience watching the shows, that's what we see. That's what we're going to judge the show by, not by how much they spend on those bus cards or, or exactly. the radio ads or whatever. Exactly. And it's word of mouth that drives every show anyway. So if you're pleasing the audience, you're marketing your show. That was the case with Avenue Q, certainly. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you saw some puppets around, but maybe they weren't the best way to market the show anyway. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> But Avenue Q is certainly a big success. Steel Magnolia's had a very nice run. Walter Boys is getting some very good vibes going. When I saw it last week, full house. So, thank you. That's great. <laughs> Robin Goodman, thank you so much for being with us today on Downstage Thanks, Center. Thanks, Howard. Thanks, Robin. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the education and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available for free, online, on demand, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten. For Downstage Center, that's a wrap, and thank you.